There are a few people more intimately involved in the decision to launch an FBI investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia than Jim Baker, the former chief counsel of the FBI. Baker was there when the FBI in the summer of 2016 opened up the counterintelligence inquiry, codenamed Crossfire Hurricane, and he personally reviewed a secret court application to wiretap the phones of Carter Page, a Trump foreign policy campaign advisor who had just left the campaign. As Baker saw it then, these moves were absolutely necessary steps in light of the alarming intelligence the Bureau had received about Russia's interference in the election and its contacts with members of the Trump campaign. But those and other moves by the FBI are now under intense scrutiny, with Attorney General Bill Barr appointing a top federal prosecutor to investigate the origins of the Russia probe. In other words, to investigate the actions of Baker and his colleagues at the FBI. We'll talk to Baker about what he makes of that extraordinary move and the other attacks from the president and his allies on the FBI on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Mike Lizikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Jim Baker, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So after more than 20 years in the government, top positions at the Justice Department, General Counsel uh, at the FBI, you're kind of in the media spotlight right now, making some waves. What is that like? What's it like? It's uh, continues to be weird and something that I'm trying to get myself used to. Um, I'm not a media expert in any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it's something that I feel is the right thing to do right now. And so I'm trying to do my best and, and not screw up. <laughs> what prompted you to want to speak out? So mainly I thought it was, I guess it's a couple things. I feel as though I have an obligation to try to help the country at this point in time, which is the thing that has motivated me throughout my career. And I want to try to give the American people some reassurance about what it was that we were doing and not doing at the FBI to let them know how their government worked and that we were acting in a lawful way. I'm sure we'll dig into that as we go here. The other thing is that I've become concerned about the level and content of the dialogue in the country with respect to the animosity, I'll use the word hatred, that is floating around in many circles. And I think we're doing a disservice to the country when we engage in that kind of interaction, that kind of those kinds of statements. So there's been some news on this front in just the last 24 hours. The attorney general has appointed John Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, to investigate the decisions that you and your colleagues made in launching the FBI investigation of Russia and its ties to the Trump campaign in the uh, summer of 2016. What is your reaction and thoughts about the Attorney General of the United States, somebody you worked with and for, taking this step? 
Well, look, I welcome accountability and transparency. It's important to hold the FBI accountable for how it exercises its authority, and the Attorney General has that responsibility to make sure that he's comfortable that we did things appropriately. So I welcome scrutiny, and you know, the Inspector General has been looking at these issues in a variety of different ways, did a big report on the Hillary Clinton investigation that we did, is working on the Russia investigation now. So, uh, reviewing that. And so this is one other part that the attorney general believes is appropriate. And I look forward to cooperating and helping uh, them come to, um, you know, the conclusions and addressing the matters that they need to address. So there actually are multiple investigations. You mentioned, Mike mentioned uh, Durham. You mentioned the inspector general. There's a U.S. attorney out in Utah, I think, who's got some part of this investigation. Uh, Lindsey Graham, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says he's going to look into the origins of the Russia investigation. So why don't we rewind, why don't we start, why don't you start by telling us your kind of account of, of how this investigation got started and then we'll uh, maybe press you on some of the issues that others have raised. The Russia investigation? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to, let's take one step back because you have to understand what we were doing in terms of the FBI's overall responsibilities to protect the country and especially with respect to Russia. So we've, we the Bureau have had investigations or an investigation, I guess you would say, a concern about Russia for decades and decades. And, you know, we are organizationally structured to deal with the Russia threat. People are assigned to work on Russia matters. It's something that's been a priority for a long, long time. And so we're constantly trying to figure out what they're up to and thwart them. That's the basic idea in a variety of different ways, lawful ways that we can we can thwart them. So when... And they, of course, have a long history of running operations against the United States and influence operations, I mean, going back to actually before the revolution. So this is not new when it comes to the Russians. Long history of trying to interfere with, uh, disrupt, intervene in our domestic affairs in an effort to achieve their national objectives and to enhance the power of the Russian Federation, now Russian Federation. Yeah, so that's what that's what they've been trying to do. And so, so when we're focused on Russia and looking at what Russia is up to, if and when Americans become involved in activities or interactions with Russia that come across our radar screen in some fashion, then we look at those. We're obligated to look at those. If there's some legitimate lawful basis under the applicable attorney general guidelines, the constitutional laws of the United States, we look at those things. And so in this particular instance, my recollection is that the thing that started the focus on what Russia was doing in connection with the Trump campaign had to do with this information that we got from a third party regarding George Papadopoulos and his interactions with them. That's from, what, from a partner intelligence Organization. From an from an allied government. Yeah, yeah. So we got that information, and that which has again, been that's, publicly reported as the Australians. But, yeah, I'm just yeah. not going to confirm or deny what Fair that is. Yeah. So, but keep in mind also. So we're looking at Russia. This Papadopoulos information comes out, but there's also a third piece, I guess, which is the activities in the summer of 2016 before we got the Papadopoulos information about the hacking of email accounts, the dumping of emails publicly other things that were going on, the, in, the government's assessment of the Russian Federation's role in that type of you know, hack and dump activity. 
And so we were looking at what they were doing, what they, the Russians, were doing at that point in time. And then this information about Papadopoulos drops. It connects those Russian activities now with at least efforts on the part of the Russians to interact with the the campaign. So that was something that and I think we, as I've said, I think we would have been derelict in our duties if we hadn't investigated uh, and, those and at matters. that moment, is there a, a growing suspicion that people either on the Trump campaign or associated with the Trump campaign are looking to collude with the Russians? I know that's not a legal term, but I think people know what we're talking about. Or is the primary concern that the Russians are probing, looking for ways to infiltrate the campaign or influence it in some ways? What's the mindset at that moment when the FBI learns about the Papadopoulos information? I guess I can just say my mindset at the time, hearing this information, my recollection of the conversations was that it's even simpler than that. What are the Russians up to? It's pretty basic. Like, what what is going on here? Why are they having these interactions? What is their goal? As I said, this investigation was about Russia. It was about Russia. And so the focus is on Russia. What are they doing and how are they trying to do it? That's what we wanted to focus in on. Okay, I have one follow-up question. I know Mike's going to have some questions on this. What I've never understood is why at that point or shortly after that, the FBI doesn't make the decision to give the candidate, Donald Trump, some sort of defensive briefing. Um, you know, he is likely to be the nominee of the Republican Party. He was, the he was by then, right. That he, by that yeah. time, he is the nominee. And it would seem to me, and I think there's a precedent for this, maybe not in a presidential campaign, but that you offer the person who might be a target of some kind of intelligence operation a briefing protectively, prophylactically, defensively, and that didn't happen. Why not? Well, a couple of things. So first of all, my recollection is that there were higher level briefings on intelligence and counterintelligence matters for the two campaigns. They were at a, at a high level. With respect to this specific thing, I think the answer is similar to the explanation we've given about why we didn't disclose to the public what we were doing with respect to the Russian investigation, you know, disclose prior to the election what we were what we were doing. My recollection is that, look, it was just simply we didn't know enough at the time to assess what was going on, who was connected to what, who was responsible. We simply didn't know enough information. And so, quite frankly, I think it would have been imprudent and poor judgment to start briefing people about the investigation when we really didn't know what was going on. I mean, you can imagine criticism that we might have gotten had we given briefings precipitously to people that we later thought were actually suspects in some fashion. But then at a certain... you've tipped them off about the investigation. Right, I would say, but at a certain point, was there enough suspicion that the FBI couldn't actually provide a defensive briefing because you may be giving information to people who could become targets of that investigation? I mean, I think, I guess I would say in this time period that I'm thinking about in the summer and early fall of 2016, I guess I would say we just didn't know enough about what clearly, as you read the Mueller report, clearly was a, I think as he describes it, a sweeping and systematic effort to interfere in our elections. We Mm -hmm. only knew the tip of the iceberg in that time period. We just hadn't dug enough to be able to feel comfortable, I think, to start briefing people that Mm -hmm. we didn't know what their level of responsibility was. But lurking beneath... Dan's question there is that there was a suspicion that the candidate himself may have been compromised or may be part of what you were looking at. So 
Was that a factor in the decision not to do a defensive briefing? So I'm not going to zoom in on that exactly. Well, I guess what I would say is we just didn't know who was responsible for what, who knew what, and who we could go to to give a defensive briefing. It simply was just too early in the investigation. Again, a very complicated in matter and a complicated investigation. It was just too hard to figure out at that early of a stage in the, in the matter. You didn't fully understand what you were investigating, but give us a sense of, at the time, how alarming was this intelligence that you had gotten? It was pretty alarming, I guess I would say. I mean, it looked, it linked up what we were beginning to see with respect to the Russians trying to intervene directly in our politics, in our election. And so that was alarming. And the thought that somehow somebody in either one of the campaigns might have had some connection to that or some awareness of it that they didn't inform the FBI about was alarming. It was quite concerning. And disorienting, I guess, in the sense that, wow, is this, this is not something that we would have expected. Uh, it was, it's contrary to what we would have thought would have happened. And were you guys talking about this? Did you and the director and others sort of try to talk through just what the potential consequences are if a Republican presidential campaign had been somehow infiltrated, compromised by the Russians. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember at what point we started talking about the sort of longer term or more significant potential implications of it. But yeah, I mean, from the outset, you could see like, oh, my goodness, this could go in a lot of really bad ways. But let's just hold on. Let's figure out what the facts are. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of nightmare scenarios that you can come up with. But let's let's figure out what we've got here. And so the, at, at the first part, my recollection is, OK, well, how are we going to go about investigating this? because we want to keep this close hold. We had just been through all the stuff with the Hillary Clinton email case, so we thought, we thought it was completed at that point in time. We were sick of politics, we were sick of having anything to do with politics. I think the last thing that people wanted to do was have some other investigation touching either one of the campaigns. We were like done with that and ready to move on, but the facts didn't allow that. And so we were, the first part was really a struggle to figure out how do we do this carefully so we keep it close hold so it doesn't leak and therefore has some impact on the on the campaign and yet how do we move quickly and prudently in light of the threat that's out there that we but were learning more the, about every day right but at the end of the day you're investigating a political campaign something that the FBI does not normally do and I guess you I would, know of how this can blow up you know down the road what can happen if it becomes public, that you are investigating, using all the tools that the FBI has to investigate somebody who's been nominated to be president of the United States. Well, I guess I would argue with your presumption there that we're investigating the political campaign. Again, we're investigating Russia, and we're investigating but the Russians any... ties to the Trump campaign. Well, what we were investigating was what was Russia doing at least this is how I think about it and how I think I thought about it at the time, I guess, based on it's been three years now. But my recollection is, you know, we're trying to figure out what are they doing, the Russians? Because it could be that the Americans on the other side are innocent. It could be that they're being duped or, or misled, unwitting, un unwitting uh, in some fashion because the Russians are extremely sophisticated and they will try to get away with as much as they can with the least amount of risk and investment that they have to put into something, but, okay, right? But, and so, so therefore, it's not 
we were not trying to investigate the campaign. We were trying to figure out what the Russians were doing with respect to the election and, to some extent, if they're touching the campaign, what are they doing and what are they up to? At some point that summer, the Steele dossier comes in, and you know how controversial that has become. But tell us when you first saw it, heard about it, learned about it, and what your reaction was and what was the reaction of the folks in the FBI. Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, sitting here right now, I'm not re- I don't remember exactly when the first time was that I encountered that. But it starts with a pretty bombshell allegation that the, the FSB's got a tape of Trump with prostitutes in his hotel room and they're hanging something over Trump. That's yeah. kind of something you would remember. Well, I remember it, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right, like literally right. how I remembered it the first time, or how yeah. I learned about it the first time. I'm not recalling right now, yeah. but uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like the information came in, and there was a lot of detail with respect to a lot of different types of activities that were allegedly going on, and so I, I guess the way I have phrased it, I think we took it seriously. We didn't necessarily take it literally. That was literally true in every respect, but it was something that something that we were obligated to deal with and obligated to assess given what I th- what we understood what I understood to be the source of the information Christopher Steele at that point in time we were obligated to take it seriously and look at it and try to figure out whether it was true or not and so the challenge was then how in the world do you go about investigating this how do you go about validating that information, because yeah. that's what we had to try to do. Well, let's talk about that, because the FBI is in the business of you know, lots and lots of information comes in. Some of it's very raw, some of it's more reliable, and you have to figure out how to assess that information. So what were the marching orders? So talk a little bit about what that process is like to try to verify information like that. So I'm not going to go into the details with respect to what investigative steps we actually took to try to to validate it. But I guess I would say that the first thing was to come up with an investigative plan for how we would go about validating that, especially with respect to the number of sources and subsources that Steele supposedly had, according to the dossier, and where they were geographically, and to try to figure out how to do it. It was sub- challenging. And so it was, a subsource was not- is, is the source's source, exactly, not necessarily yeah. known to... May or may not have been known yeah, to, the, to the FBI, to Steele yeah. or the FBI, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, this comes up on a regular basis with sources. They often have subsources of various natures and uh, to various degrees. And so we, the Bureau, had to try to figure out how to do that. That was common. I guess the other thing is that I would just make a comment while we're on this topic generally is, as I've said, I think, we're not a bunch of idiots, and we just don't take everything and swallow it hook, line, and sinker. We go through a process of validating information that we receive some source, from sources. It's hard. It's challenging. Can mistakes be made? Of course mistakes can be made. And so in terms of handling sources, vetting their information, it's very, it's very difficult, but it's important to do. But we just, at least in my experience, don't swallow things whole and just accept what some source tells us as the, the gospel truth. So by the time you've said that you personally reviewed the Carter Page FISA warrant, uh, and it's a process you knew better than anybody in the government, uh, because you used to head the Justice Department office that submitted FISA requests to the FISA court, and that's in October. At that point in time, 
What was the FBI's assessment of the credibility of the Steele allegations? My recollection is that so that some of that information was put into the Carter Page FISA. Right. And if you look at what's been disclosed, because uh, you know there's a redacted copy of that uh, available on the public record now, heavily redacted. But there is a long footnote that goes into describing our assessment of Steele. You're not named in the application, right. but you know of Steele at that point in time. And I believe successfully endeavors to lay out at least what we knew at the top of the organization about Steele and his reliability at that time. And to put the court on notice, it's a footnote in normal type. You can't miss it. It's almost like a page long, if not a page long. And to put the court on notice about matters regarding Steele's credibility so the court could make an assessment. Well, what it says, and, as I recall it, is that Steele had a political agenda that was detrimental to that of candidate Trump. But it doesn't walk through what was verified, what was not verified, what your overall assessment of the credibility of the allegations were. Well, a lot of that footnote is blacked out, is my recollection, but I think it does make an assessment at the end of the day that the FBI believed him to be reliable. We wouldn't have been putting the, if, if I believe that if we had the, well, you can imagine some type of scenario where you might put the information in and say that you nevertheless, you don't believe that it's reliable, but I think we would most likely not even put it in the first place if we didn't think it was reliable. As you sit here today, would you write it in the same way? Uh, I don't know all the facts and circumstances that the, I assume the inspector general has been looking at this in but detail. But you've read the Mueller report and you have a general idea of what's panned yeah, out. Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, not. I don't know what I would uh, do. I mean, you have, to, you have to remember that a FISA application is part of an investigation. It's in order to get authorization to use a particular type of investigative tool to figure out what's going on. It's a snapshot taken at a particular moment in the investigation when you know certain facts, but you don't know everything, and you don't know how the investigation is going to conclude at the end of the day. So facts can change. Assessments can change. As your investigation proceeds, you learn more, and you learn about stuff you didn't know before, and you discount stuff that you thought was true previously, you legitimately thought was true, but now you realize was wrong. So that's just, just not speaking specifically about this case, but just generally, that's what you do. It's You're in the middle of the investigation, and then you have to it evolves. Well, and so your, your assessment changes. There's probably nobody who knows more about the relationship between the FISA court and those judges who, who sit up there um, and the lawyers both in the FBI and the Justice Department who deal with them regularly. And I wonder if there's a sense in which, you know, that relationship has built up institutionally over years. There's a certain level of trust. There's not public scrutiny in that process. Um, if lawyers at the FBI and the Justice Department aren't as explicit about everything, don't go through the details the way Mike was, was uh, questioning you about because of that institutional relationship that has built up over all of these years and, the, and that kind of trust that exists. Well, so yes, the government has to have, uh, the court has to have trust in the government and the lawyers uh, that are appearing before it. I spent a huge amount of time and energy on that question and did everything that I could possibly think of to make sure that the court retained confidence in me personally, in the Justice Department, in the attorney ge attorneys general, and my lawyers that were going before the court. So 
the way it works is that you know we file applications and we put into them we have an obligation to put in, into them all the material facts so what should be reflected in the application are the material facts that would help the court understand what's going on because it's an ex parte proceeding the lawyers appearing before the court have the highest duty of candor to the tribunal to the court and so we should be doing that that's how we should be proceeding Remember, though, that the court has its own legal uh, advisors, the senior experienced uh, attorneys who worked on thousands at this point in time of, uh, of FISA applications. They know what they're doing. And there's a dialogue and a discussion back and forth between the government and the court about the applications, the facts, information in them. And so that's why when I read that Carter Page application, it, to me, uh, even just going on what's not been redacted, at the end of the day, I thought that what was in there was consistent with the way we describe sources and describe their reliability in other applications. So when you were running the, the FISA application process at the Justice Department and petitioning the court, how often did your applications get rejected? I mean, they rejected some, but they didn't, but it was a small percentage. It was a very small percentage. And but usually that, you would go back and revise them, right? Yeah, I mean, we would yeah. submit the application. There's a whole series of explanations about why the right. denial rate was so low that it gets people worked up and it used to get people right. worked up at that point in time. The whole rubber stamp idea. The whole rubber stamp reject. idea. I re- reject it categorically yeah. because the that was just not my experience with the court. It was no rubber stamp. Be, we would submit applications in draft prior to them being signed. And so if the court had a problem with the probable cause, or something having to do with the technique or the minimization procedures or whatever, we would review it and address it and try to fix the application, add more facts. If we'd filed something already, maybe we'd file a supplemental declaration to give more facts to the court if they had concern. We would adjust it. We would have interactions about it and and fix it. There was no incentive to sort of gin up some type of denial so we could appeal it. That just didn't make sense on a general basis. Let me take you to the events of January 6th, 2017. January 6th, 2017. Yes, that's when the intelligence community chiefs, including the FBI director, are going to go brief President-elect Trump at Trump Tower about the intelligence assessment about Russia's interference in the election. And there's a meeting at the FBI before Comey goes, and one question on the table is, do you tell the president-elect that he is not under investigation as part of what the FBI is doing. And as Comey has testified and written at his book, you very forcefully argued that that should not be communicated to President-elect Trump. Why? Because I didn't think it was accurate. Because I thought that by that point in time that the president fell within the category of what we would describe as the subject or a subject of the investigation, meaning that as the head of the campaign and given the scope of the investigation that we were conducting relative to the campaign, I thought that his activities fell within the scope of what we were investigating. And that's the definition under Department of Justice guidelines about what a subject is, that the activities of the person fall within the scope of the investigation. So therefore, I didn't think it was accurate to say that he wasn't under investigation. And Jim and I had many discussions about that. And I know he's testified and, and uh, written about it. And uh, What did he say simply, back to you? 
He disagreed. And On so, what grounds? What did he say? He thought that was too far of a stretch, and he just didn't feel comfortable saying that to the at that point in time. I guess he was the president-elect because he thought. My recollection is, I think he thought it would be, what's the word exactly? Too confusing, hard to understand, uh, be misinterpreted. And he just didn't think it was the right thing to but do. But that, that wouldn't happen if it were, mm. it were an ordinary citizen. It was because he was president elect at that point, presumably. Well, yeah. And you're going, I mean, ordinary citizens are usually not talking to people about matters relative True. to the investigation as a general matter. But people, when you interview them, when you interview a normal person, it is common, especially if that person has an attorney, to ask, well, what's my status? Am I a target? Am I a subject? Am I just a witness? And you have an obligation to explain to that person what their subject is when you're interviewing them in connection with the investigation. Okay, talk about being misinterpreted. Comey's doing something else pretty extraordinary at that moment. He's going to present to Trump the information from the Steele dossier that there are allegations that he was consorting with prostitutes in Moscow. A pretty sensational, salacious allegation. Was there a full discussion about the wisdom of doing that, knowing that you had not verified that allegation? There were many discussions about that event which was one of the many horrible things that we had to deal with during 2016, 2017, going back to the Clinton investigation. It was a horrible year where we were confronted with many, many difficult, challenging, novel, unheard of decisions that we nevertheless had to make and we had to execute. And so, yeah, so with respect to that particular uh, discussion, we talked about it a lot and tried to figure out exactly what we were going to say, why do we need to say something in the first place? Why are we doing this? Where did uh, you come down on that? Well, I came down on it that it had to be brief to the president-elect significantly because it was about to be disclosed in the press. That was the, to me, that was sort of the driving the factor at the end of the day. This was about to come out. And we thought, I thought, it would be inappropriate not to brief the president-elect because we knew about this information already to some degree. And for him to find out later that we knew about this, went up there, gave him a briefing on a related topic, and didn't at least alert him to the fact that this information was out there and that we hadn't verified it yet. But did you talk through how this was likely to be received yes. by Donald Trump yes. himself, knowing who he is, what his mindset is? You're the FBI, you know, the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover, blackmailing lots of people over many decades, that that's how this would come off. Yeah, Jim and I had talked over the years many times about uh, the Hoover days, especially the investigation of Martin Luther King Jr., what was done there, the blackmailing of of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so, yeah, we were quite worried about that, quite worried about how that would come off. And so we wanted to try to make sure to convey to the president-elect that that's what we were not doing, that, sir, we have this information. It came to us in a particular way. The press has it. It's about to come out. You should be alerted to, to that fact. We don't want to proceed on this basis without you being aware of those facts. But, no, we were quite worried about the, the Hoover analogies and were determined not to have such a uh, 
a disaster happen on our watch. So Comey comes back from the meeting. Uh, you know, you, you talk to him. Um, he tells you he did this, but he also told the president-elect that he was not under investigation. What was your reaction? Well, that last part, as I said, I disagree with him with respect right. to that assessment. But, yeah, Jim then created, the I think it was the first of his various memos on his interactions uh, with the president-elect and then the president. Yeah, so, you know, we were, I don't know, he, he did the best he could under extremely difficult, difficult circumstances with respect to that very challenging, difficult conversation. I want to play a clip of Comey just recently on Anderson Cooper in which— He's asked again by Anderson Cooper about that allegation, the P-tape allegation, which to this day has not been verified. There's been no corroborating evidence um, to support it that's surfaced. You said that you had told President or then uh, President-elect, I guess, Trump, that uh, th- that it was unverified, the, the salacious aspects about the tapes. Yeah. Um, George Stephanopoulos interviewed you two years or a year ago when your first book came out. And I just want to play uh, something that you said about those about this tape. Okay. Do you believe this denial? Honestly, never thought these words would come out of my mouth, but I don't know whether the, the current president of the United States was with prostitutes peeing on each other in Moscow in 2013. It's possible, but I don't know. So, so I mean, the investigation's over now. Nothing in the Mueller report corroborated that salacious claim about the, the tapes and prostitutes. Do you regret making those comments, which some would see as sort of stoking the fires or or leaving it as an open question? No, I was trying to give an honest answer, and my answer would be the same today. But you could have just said, well, those were unverified. Right, I thought that's what I was saying, that I don't know whether it's true or not. That's a crazy thing to have to say, because with any other leader, I would think I would say that's preposterous. It couldn't possibly be true. There's a footnote in the Mueller report that actually makes potentially oblique reference to these tapes where someone in Russia is alerting, I think with Michael Cohen, in October, late October, we stopped the flow of the tapes. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but Mueller seems to connect it in some way to that allegation. Again, Mueller didn't say it wasn't uh, the case. He didn't disprove it, but he also didn't establish that it was the case. Right, and I think that person said that those tapes were were false. Another Um, important thing is the counterintelligence part of this work, which is what whether the Russians had leverage over the president, that would be part of the counterintelligence investigation. Mueller left that with the FBI. His document is about a prosecutor's look at whether there are crimes to be prosecuted. Do you think, do you think the Russians have leverage over President Trump? I don't know the answer to that. You think it's possible? Yes. Granted, Jim Comey is now a private citizen. He can say whatever he wants. But how do you feel about a former FBI director giving some credence to an allegation, pretty salacious, that the FBI has never verified. I guess I'm not sure that he's giving credence to it. He's to, simply to saying say that he doesn't that he know. To say he doesn't know if it's true or not is coming from the former director of the FBI, is keeping alive something that you normally wouldn't do. When you're the FBI, you deal with facts, with evidence that you can corroborate. Jim Comey is going beyond that in that colloquy with Anderson Cooper. I understand. I think I understand your point. But, I mean, he's, he's a private citizen now. He's entitled to say whatever he wants. I guess I would say that, look, there's no information in the Mueller report that establishes the veracity of that allegation. And so I guess I would, I would leave it at that. There's no information there that indicates that that 
allegation is reliable at Isn't least at there this a, point in time. Don't you know enough now to be able to say that based on all of the investigations that took place, all of the assessing of the Steele report, that there is reason to cast doubt on a sensational allegation like that, or you wouldn't go that far? I don't know what the Bureau has found. There's been no public assertion that it is reliable by the Bureau or by Mueller. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's been nothing to establish, at least in the public record that I'm aware of, nothing to establish that that particular allegation is is true. And so I think it's I guess I would say it's prudent at this point in time to have skepticism because I think were there to be something that would uh, validate it, you would have thought it would have come out so by this Comey, point in time. So Comey is wrong to be speculating about this. I'm not going to say that he's wrong to be speculating. He's entitled to his opinion. I've phrased it the best I can in terms of how I would think about it now. There's no information to validate it at this point in time that's been made public, and so you know, going back to the beginning, I had skepticism about aspects of that reporting and, you know, still do. The attorney general made quite a few waves recently when he talked about spying by the FBI. And I think you reacted pretty strongly to his use of that term. Now, he says, look, it's a colloquial term that is equivalent to surveillance. The question is, was there an adequate predicate for it. But you think the attorney general was wrong to be talking the way he was? Well, I guess what I'm I'm trying to say is that I don't know all the information that the attorney general knows. So I don't know exactly what he's basing that assessment on. All I can say is what I was aware of at the time and how I think about the word spying. And to me, the term spying connotes some level of impropriety, of unlawfulness. And what I'm aware of with respect to what the FBI did, we did it lawfully, consistent with the attorney general guidelines and so on. So therefore, I don't think about it as spying. I think about it as the FBI undertaking lawful investigative activities in order to figure out what's going on. So I, I just I don't understand what the attorney general is trying to convey in that regard. But as I say, I don't have access to all the information he well, does. Well, clearly he believes something was going on because he's appointed Durham to undercut undertake this investigation. And by the way, if I heard you correctly in your initial answer, you will fully cooperate with the Durham investigation. I plan to fully cooperate with the department to help them figure out what happened, because I believe what happened was lawful, um, at least based on every piece of information that I have. Rod Rosenstein was quite upset with what Comey wrote in his recent op-ed, questioning his character in the way that he handled the Mueller investigation. Of course, Rosenstein wrote the memo that recommended firing Jim Comey. We have a clip of um, Rosenstein's talk just last night, I believe. So I do not blame the former director for being angry. I would be too if I were in his shoes. But now the former director seems to be acting as a partisan pundit, selling books and earning speaking fees while speculating about the strength of my character and the fate of my immortal soul. I kid you not. That is disappointing. Speculating about souls is not a job for police and prosecutors. Does Rod Rosenstein have a right to be angry? 
uh, he's entitled to whatever emotional reaction he's having to <laughs> Jim's statements. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, I mean, but what did what do you make of his comments? Well, again, I mean, I think you know Jim Comey at this point in time is a private citizen, and he's entitled to say whatever he wants to say. He's not a prosecutor or an investigator, or whatever it is that the, the the former deputy attorney general said, and. So, you know, Jim's entitled to his views. Rod's entitled to his views. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, let's talk about your views. Um, and because you've been the target of the president, he's tweeted about you. A lot of his allies have gone after you. You've been a dedicated, you know, government servant for years, served honorably, never had any uh, questions about your integrity. To find it under attack now, what's it been like? It's been horrible. I mean, it's 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 horrible. There's not much else I can say about it. I guess I have, you know, gotten a bit more accustomed to hearing it, accustomed to the tweets and so on. When they first started to happen, it was very unnerving and sort of an out-of-body experience to have the president of the United States tweeting about you in what I perceived to be a negative light initially and then the, the following ones. So, yeah, it's been it's been horrible. It's been horrible. It's also been, you know— I guess I would say rewarding in a strange way because when the president, especially when he first started to attack me and throughout this period, my friends have rallied around me. And so I've been extremely fortunate and lucky to, to have that. I've made the analogy to feeling like Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Stewart at the end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, there's all these people come out and support you. And it really was an emotional reaction in that way, too, to feel that, uh, to feel that from so many people. It but was you, really, it was great. You, you, uh, you've had an interesting reaction, an interesting way of, of kind of fighting back. You wrote a piece in Lawfare called Why I Do Not Hate Donald Trump. In fact, your response is to love Donald Trump and to love the people who support Donald Trump. And you refer to it as a kind of defiant love. Talk about that. Yeah, so it just seems so. Right. I, I'm trying to figure out what I'm, how I'm capable of responding in a, or whether I'm capable of responding in a positive way that, again, is helpful to the country and does honor to the people who have given me the freedom and opportunity that I have. And it just strikes me that anger and hatred is the wrong approach, at least for me. Look, this has been a, I'm not like some perfect person. I have plenty of flaws and weaknesses. And this has been a journey for me to, to get to this point. And I'm not saying that I've successfully reached the end of the journey. I, I, I struggle with these things. I still react when I hear negative comments about me or my, in, in particular about my friends and, and former colleagues. And so I'm just trying to say that it seems to me that for me personally and for the country, there's got to be a better way to respond to the president. And anger and hatred is not the right way. Also, fear is not the right way. So I think that, that the, I think the anger and hatred may come from initially from a, a sense of fear about him. And so I don't want to I don't want to have any of those emotions. I want to try to move forward in a positive way to have a, have a positive dialogue, especially with the president's supporters, some of whom include, you know, my family and friends. And so even though I don't necessarily understand their perspective, uh, I strive to. I strive to, to to understand why they support the president, and I love them, uh, and I want to try to expand that. And I think that's a better way forward 
for the country than for all of us to be arguing and hating and speaking all these things. But, because at the same, but at the same time, I think you must believe that the president has done things uh, that have been destructive to uh, the institution uh, that you love dearly, the Justice Department, including the FBI, by attacking this investigation um, as a witch hunt and a hoax and attacking firing FBI directors, attacking them personally, forcing out attorneys general, attacking you personally. At the end of the day, I mean, I think you've talked about, you know, investigations are about, are about asking questions. If you knew the answers, you wouldn't have to investigate. So, and I think you've said that it would be a dereliction of, of duty right. if you had not investigated these events and these set of facts. So, what kind of damage does all of this do to the FBI, to its ability to um, investigate things, things that they suspect, things that could be um, threats to the United States, federal crimes? Um, what, what's the toll of all of that? Well, the, look, the FBI is a resilient organization full of people who have to confront, confront and deal with adverse circumstances all the time. And so I have confidence that they'll make it through this. What it does, I think, though, is undermines the confidence of the American people in the FBI, impartiality of the FBI, in the professionalism of the FBI and the Justice Department. And so that's what concerns me, because in the long run, the FBI needs the trust and confidence of the American people in order to be successful in a variety of different ways, to support funding increases for the FBI, to uh, reach out to the FBI and provide it with information when they see something going on that they think is wrong and unlawful, and to cooperate with the FBI when the FBI needs help and asks for the public's help or knocks on a door and asks to talk to somebody. And if people have it in their mind that there's something wrong or corrupt about the FBI, then they're not going to do that. And that is destructive to the, uh, to the overall system. And just one last thing, and then people sit on juries. American citizens sit on juries and have to listen to FBI witnesses testify. And, you know, they should not just, again, swallow what the FBI says hook, line, and sinker. But if they've already had their minds sort of turned against the FBI by the president of the United States himself, I think that does undermine the system of justice in you the United States. You love Donald Trump, but do you want to see him defeated in 2020? And will you vote against him? So I let's back up. I am on a path. Toward loving the president. Okay. That is my. <laughs> but, that is my. That's a great. But I got one last question. He didn't at answer the, my question. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, you're a law enforcement guy, and Robert Mueller laid out compelling evidence that a lot of people say amounts to obstruction of justice, a federal crime. What should be the reaction of the House of Representatives to the evidence that Mueller spelled out in his report? Okay, let's back up a second. I'm not a law enforcement guy right now well, because your career. I, my career was, but guy. I am not. And right. that is painful to me. That is painful to me because I love that career and I loved those institutions, which is part of the reason I find uh, many of the statements that the president and other people make against those uh, so challenging to deal with. I wish I was still there uh, because I love the FBI, I love the Department of Justice. With respect to the Mueller report, look, I think especially volume two that talks about obstruction is alarming. And even if it doesn't rise to the level of criminality, which I think there's an open question about that, it certainly reveals what I assess as a, in my opinion, a pattern of corruption that is alarming and should not be tolerated, tolerated in the United States. With respect to what the House of Representatives should do, I guess I would say 
Look, I mean, the polling, to the extent that you can rely on it, indicates that there's sort of not public support for uh, impeachment proceedings. So I think whatever the House of Representatives is going to do under its Article I authorities is going to have to be with the support of the American people. So they've got to do, which does not seem to be there now. So I think they need to do a better job of educating the American people about why, why they're concerned about the president, his activities, or his, you know, other people in the administration, and build the case and educate and explain before they take any action. Okay. Jim Baker, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Jim Baker for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.